Welcome to Shelf Logic, the official podcast of the Maricopa County Library District. My name is Caroline, and I am a library professional at the Litchfield Park Branch Library. And today I am joined by Tim, a library assistant at our library. Today we will be discussing science fiction through the lens of Star Trek, specifically Star Trek movies. Before we jump into Star Trek, let's discuss why science fiction is so important. Many authors and screenwriters have used science fiction to view the human condition. It's much easier to watch a story about tough social issues when the issues are presented in an entertaining fashion. As we did in our first podcast in the series, where we talked about the Star Trek TV shows, we will be talking today about Gene Roddenberry's vision of the future. Mr. Roddenberry's utopian vision includes racial tolerance, gender equality, and economic equality. People in Star Trek are treated justly and with compassion, whether they are Terrans, aliens, androids, or holograms. So Tim, what movies will we be discussing today? Yes, we'll be discussing uh, the first six Star Trek movies, the next for Next Generation movies, and finally the last three uh, Kelvin Timeline Star Trek movies, which we'll get more into when we get to those movies. Mm -hmm. So with Star Trek The Motion Picture, we jump into post the original series, where Kirk has been made Admiral, uh, Spock is going through a process called Kolinar on Vulcan, where he's purging all emotion, and the Enterprise is getting refitted to go out on a new five-year mission. Uh, but something always, as always, gets in the way. Yeah, it wouldn't be a movie if, or a story if, if we didn't have some sort of conflict. Yes, and that conflict comes in the form of a massive ship called V'ger. Mm -hmm. uh, so Caroline, what... Uh, what utopian topic does the motion picture really start delving into? Okay, well, V'ger, like a lot of different technology in Star Trek, takes its programming a little bit too seriously. And V'ger, which is actually a Voyager, or yeah, Voyager, right? Yeah, Voyager 6. Right, probe takes exploration to the extreme. Yes. I believe V'ger has been tampered with by aliens and made much bigger and much more than the probe was to begin with. Yes, so it's said in the motion picture that V'ger ended up landing on a machine world where sentient machines lived and they saw V'ger's programming and fell to kindred spirits, so they upgraded V'ger <laughs> to the point where it was sentient. The only problem was that they didn't really give V'ger much else besides its core programming, which was to go out, explore everything that could be explored, and then come back to its creator. Mm -hmm. uh, and it did not know who its creator was, just where it came from. Right. So it returns expecting to find a sentient machine that created it and instead finds Earth and the Federation and V'ger doesn't really have the same conscience 
as doesn't have a conscience. Yes, it just has explore and absorb information. Right. So it's very logical. Yes, it is incredibly logical to the point where it's all logic but no soul. Yeah, and that's where we see the parallel between what Spock is going through and what Viger's going through. Yes. Where Spock is trying to purge all emotion to be totally logical, and Viger is just sacient, but only intellect. Yes, and we also see a parallel with the Federation and its mission of exploration. The Federation does so to better itself and to... Uh, expand its own horizons, whereas V'ger does just does it because it's its mission, and it does it coldly, logically, and with precision. Mm -hmm. And ultimately, V'ger is stopped not by force, but by becoming more like its creators. Yeah, V'ger needs more. Yes. And that's what Spock... Spock figures this out, and he does a mind meld of, of sorts to figure it out that V'ger needs more. So what does V'ger need? V'ger needs uh, to be more like a person, mm -hmm. and it does that by becoming one with a couple of different people. Right. Um, and I think that's, that's pretty much the core. Nothing gets blown up. Nothing gets... <laughs> Uh, shot, the situation is resolved by, um, and admittedly it does sort of cause deaths, but the situation is resolved ultimately by somebody joining with the machine. Yeah, and it's, that kind of goes with a couple of Star Trek ideas of bettering oneself or sacrificing yourself for others. Yes. So you could see, say that the people who joined with them either was they were becoming better because they joined or they... They adapted. There you go. Yeah. And I think we'll see some more of that topic, not adaption, but sacrificing yourself for others mm -hmm. in the next topic, which is... Uh, Star Trek The Wrath of Khan, which is the most famous of all the movies, I would say. It usually ends up number one on the list. Yes. It's a very, very good movie, but it deals in particular with a couple of topics, uh, and those would be Caroline? Um, I think the main topic is Genesis. Yes. And Genesis is a way of terraforming a planet. So it's a way of bettering a world. We, better pe we make better people, we make better worlds, and we create, it's actually physically creating a utopia. Yes, and the Federation sees this, and being utopian idealists are all for it. The only problem is that, and we'll get more into this in the next movie, is that Genesis doesn't work. And it ends up destroying as much as it creates. Um, but besides Genesis, which we'll, we'll, we will get into more in the next movie, there is another topic in Wrath of Khan, the titular bad guy, mm -hmm. uh, Khan. Khan. And this is something I had not thought of before, but um, Tim kind of showed me that 
it's one of the themes that happens in a lot of the movies, and that is the Federation uh, or Starfleet drops the ball. Yes, they've left Khan, who was a bad guy from the television show, and the television show episode uh, Space Seed, I believe, right, uh, resolves with them leaving uh, Khan and his augmented followers on a planet to their own devices, uh, largely ignored by the Federation. Ignored to the point where when there's a catastrophe in space and Khan and his people have no recourse or way to reach out, Starfleet arrives and discovers that uh, their entire planet they left them on is basically a barren wasteland. Mm -hmm. And they just sort of left these people out there to their own devices. Right. And Khan is very upset by that. Yeah. <laughs> and he learns about Genesis and he immediately sees it for its weapon potential. Right. Which I think brings us into three mm -hmm. uh, because that's one of the core focuses of three. Yeah, in, in three we find out that Dr. Marcus used protomatter when creating um, Genesis, and it's unstable. And because the matrix is unstable, it's like Genesis, Genesis keeps growing and growing until it dies. Yes, and because Spock, spoiler alert, passes away <laughs> in the Wrath of Khan, his body is on the Genesis planet, and it even gets essentially rebooted. Right. Um, and through other means, Spock ends up coming back. But the key thing here is that it wasn't just Khan who saw the dangerous potential of the Genesis device. The Klingons did as well. And the Federation pays for its, its essentially negligence multiple times over both two and three, where it ignored the fact that the Genesis device could easily become a weapon mm -hmm. <laughs> and it could easily be used to essentially destroy an entire planet's population. And if you're the Klingons and you're looking at the Federation testing this device that can yeah. terraform an entire world, and at this point you're, you don't have uh, a non-aggression treaty, you have the neutral zone treaty, mm -hmm. which just means you're not going to go back and forth well, it's basically the Cold War. Yes. You have um, the United States and Russia, or you have um, the Federation and the Klingons. There's always been, until they actually are brought into the Federation and they do have their treaties, there's always this kind of Cold War thing going on where neither one of them um, trusts each other. Yes. and. So if you're in that position and you see the person across from you and they have a means of destroying your entire mm -hmm. planet and if it worked, making it rehabitable for themselves, you would kind of rightfully be like, what, what a wait a second. Yeah. <laughs> um, obviously though, Genesis doesn't work and it's just a very dangerous weapon and the secrets of which are passed away. Immediately following three, we move into Star Trek IV, The Voyage Home. Yeah. And The Voyage Home takes place, I think, a week later. <laughs> uh, yeah, everything has happened and they're 
yeah. going home, and then something else happens. Yes, it's it's literally the voyage home, uh-huh. and they a probe is approaching Earth, and it's communicating in a language that's not native to Earth, uh, at least at that time. Right. And Spock figures out that it is actually whale language, specifically humpback yeah. whales. Whale song. And that this probe that's destroying technology and shutting down all of essentially life on Earth is searching for humpback whales. Right, because they think that they are the intelligent species of Earth. Yes, and this probe um, isn't responding to anything else, so the the crew of the now HMS Bounty, because they're on a Klingon ship, travels back in time because whales are um, extinct in right. the future. We, we as human beings hunted them to extinction, right. and they're not around in the future of the Federation, uh, which I believe, Caroline, would be the main topic of the utopian comparison. Right, so this is a comparison contrast between um, the utopian future and what we have in the 1980s. Tim and I picked out a couple of things that we think are funny or interesting as the differences between the two. And the one that I've told Tim that I think is the most interesting is when Chekhov and Uhura are, they need to get um, nuclear energy to be able to do what they want to do with picking up these two whales, getting them into the ship, and then going to the future. And that is, you have um, Chekhov, who's obviously Russian, asking everyone in San Francisco where the nuclear vessels are. Yes, 1980s uh, San Francisco, complete with the Alameda Naval Yard, I believe it is, Mm -hmm. uh, complete with Navy ships there. You have this Russian gentleman running around Right. And again, we're talking Cold War ideas. And my topic uh, that I found the funniest was Kirk and this uh, uh, whale biologist Mm -hmm. uh, go on uh, a dinner and she ends up having to pay for dinner because as she asks Kirk, she's like, I guess they don't have money in the future. And he looks at her and he goes, well, they don't. No. <laughs> and it's, they, they've moved beyond right. the need for money. Yeah, you're not striving for monetary gain anymore. You're striving to better yourself. So yeah. it op- not having to worry about money opens up a lot of things for you. So the voyage home is, as we mentioned, a giant comparison between the Federation of the future and at that point, present day Earth. Environmental issues are taken uh, mm-hmm. much more seriously in the future. Right. Uh, national borders don't really matter in the future right. of Federation, and money doesn't right. matter, doesn't exactly. even exist uh-huh. uh, in the Federation of the future. Mm-hmm. Uh, it only exists in comparison to trade to other species. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, that means that we then move on to Star Trek V, mm-hmm. uh, and Caroline, would you like to discuss Star Trek V? This is so fun. Well, okay, so Star Trek V. <laughs> Not the greatest of the movies. Um, usually the, the 
on the worst to best list, it's considered the worst. And that is because of actually the making of the movie. It turns out that William Shatner's not that great of a director. And also, you must always use ILM for your special effects. Otherwise, they're going to be awful. Uh, yes. Uh, but that being said, <laughs> there are some good things about <laughs> Star Trek V. And a lot of good topics that get brought up, like the place of where a lot of the movie is set is Nimbus, which is the planet of galactic peace. Which is the total opposite. Yes, it is a lawless wasteland, <laughs> essentially, where everyone made their own weapons. Um, and none of the three major powers, the Federation, the Klingons, or the Romulans, want it to make a move on that planet for risk of causing trouble with the others. So it's essentially left a barren wasteland. Right. <laughs> and it's it's a fascinating study of like what happens when a utopia actually runs into a situation where they can't really do utopian things. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so it's not it's not a pleasant place. No. And you have somebody who shows up and with a lot of good intentions. Yes. And this gentleman is basically looking for God. Yeah. I think that's more than fair to say. That's mm -hmm. they even I think think essentially say that. Right. And and once they go through the whole movie and they get to this big huge head that is looks like God and speaks like God and then Kirk says to him what does God need with a starship exactly and that's uh as much as that line is like funny uh it's also one of the few moments I think in the movie that genuinely sort of like touches on the the concepts of the Federation where Kirk Everyone else is just going along with what the main villain says and because they're either family or they're mind control, <laughs> basically. Uh, they've been brainwashed. Kirk is one of the few left, and he just points out sort of the obvious. Mm -hmm. And as much as that's comedic, that's also part of what the utopian ideals of the Federation are about is you just confront things head on. Mm -hmm. You don't uh, ignore it. And we'll talk about that a little bit more when we get to the Next Generation movies, mm -hmm. specifically First Contact, because that movie also shares a similar concept. You, you have to confront pain head on. Mm -hmm. And you have to confront the real world head on. And that's, as much as Five gets maligned, I think that's one of the most positive things that comes out of it. Mm -hmm. uh, which does move us past five, however, and into my favorite of the original series movies, The Undiscovered Country. Mm -hmm. uh, Caroline, would you like to discuss it? Yes, um, this is another movie that is basically the Federation and the Klingons. And um, Spock is actually trying to broker a peace treaty between the two. And 
he doesn't realize this is going to happen. I really don't think he does. But neither side is really wanting this because it's change. Yes. And it's hard to change. Yes. And so this movie is about trying to get back past hatreds and biases and move toward peace. Um, you have Kirk, who will never forget that a Klingon killed his son. Yes. And I think, I think one of the most interesting things and why I like Undiscovered Country is that Kirk is incredibly relatable. Shatner does a great job of being both angry but also wanting to be true to the ideals of the Federation and being a representative of this utopia. And there's that moment where Spock goes, but they'll die if we don't help them because of an environmental right, disaster. exactly. And then Kirk turns to him and just goes, well, let them die. Uh-huh. And then he sort of like pulls back and realizes what he said. <laughs> right, exactly. Did that come out of my mouth? And it's an incredibly dark moment. Mm-hmm. But it's also one that's necessary mm-hmm. because... Kirk's son did get killed. Right. And he has a personal stake in this. Mm -hmm. And even in a utopia, even in a perfect future, they're still humans. They're still, they still have emotion and they still have feeling. Mm -hmm. And they don't necessarily just get past that. Mm -hmm. You have to purposely put that aside. And it's, one of my favorite messages from any of the Star Trek movies is that sometimes you won't like the person across from you, but you still have to work with them. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a, a great message for any sort of uh, time period. Okay. And I have to ask you this question, Tim, because it just came into my mind. Do you like this um, movie because there's also a mystery in it? I do like that there is a mystery to solve, um, but I also like it because Sulu gets to be captain of the Excelsior. Well, that is really cool. Yeah, and I like that too. That's uh, That was always fun to see because mm-hmm. Sulu is one of my favorite characters in Star yeah. Trek. So it's uh, it's got a whole lot that appeals to me on multiple levels. Um, but that being said, we move out of the original series for the most part and into the next generation. And I say we move out of the original series, but the first Next Generation movie starts with Kirk and some of the original series crew uh, ushering in the a new generation, right. in this case, the Enterprise B. Mm-hmm. And something happens, Kirk ends up, for lack of a better term, declared dead. Right. Uh, he's been lost in space to the space ribbon. Mm-hmm. Uh, called the Nexus, and we pick up with the actual Next Generation, mm-hmm. uh, Captain Picard, and the crew of the Enterprise D. Mm-hmm. So, Caroline, would you like to uh, discuss how the Enterprise D and the Next Generation crew of Star Trek Generations ties into the Utopia? Well, this in the storyline, we have this this ribbon and it takes you to a place called the Nexus. And it turns out that that's some place that Guinan's people had been brought into. And they were taken out of there. And Guinan, when she talks to Picard about it, she says, it being there is like being wrapped in joy. 
It is utopia. It is everything that you ever wanted in your life and you will never want to leave. What's interesting is that it's the same incident, her people on the ship that they were on, it's the same incident where Kirk dies. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I say dies in quotation marks yeah. because in reality the Nexus is a paradise that where time doesn't really exist. Mm-hmm. Um, and by the end of the movie, Kirk is pulled back out. And the next generation takes place, what, I think a hundred years almost after... Um, well, I don't think it's that much because remember in the Next Generation TV show, you did have Dr. Uh, McCoy. McCoy. Yeah. So, it, but it's at least several decades. Right. Because he is, uh, I think, a hundred something at that point. Yeah, he's like about 120 years old or something yeah. like that. And he was one of the oldest um, members of the crew in the original yeah. series. So, it, I would say it's been at least 50 years. Right. Uh, and. So it, it takes place a good deal of time later. Mm-hmm. And Kirk is brought out of the Nexus to help Picard at the end of the movie because he was trapped there. Mm-hmm. And he realizes part of what makes life worth living isn't that it's perfect, it's that there's risk and challenge involved. Right, and that's very Kirk. And it's very much the idea of a utopia. Well, utopia can go too far. I mean, yes. you don't want everybody to be very passive and lazy and yes. not have anything that'll spur them on. Yes. And there is no risk, there is no change, there is no growth mm-hmm. without challenge. Right. And part of accepting a utopia is accepting that there will always be another challenge. And a challenge also means that you can fail. And Kirk comes out of the Nexus, fights beside Picard to stop the uh, movie's villain, and ends up dying. Which I don't think he would have any other way, Mm -hmm. even if the actual death is sort of ignominious. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah, a lot of people don't like the way, don't like Kirk's end. And I've heard Shatner defend it, that when his last words are, oh my, it's because he he says he is looking into the unknown. He is looking into what happens to you after your life, and it is, so much that the only words he can say is, oh my. So that's how he thinks that William Shatner thinks it was a good death. But other people have thought that it wasn't enough for for such a a strong character. I I think it's sort of perfect for the story that it's telling is that he just sort of dies. And he's okay with that. Mm -hmm. And... Part of why he left the Nexus was because that always had to be a possibility. Uh-huh. And it ends up coming to fruition. And it is him literally facing death. Yeah. Where through the whole, all of the movies, he has always, he never had that. He never really faced death. And this is him actually doing it. Yeah, in a very literal sense. Right. Um, but that moves us into the next Next Generation <laughs> movie, 
which is First Contact, yeah. which is widely, I think, considered the best of the next generation. Oh, it is. Uh, I love this movie. I really enjoyed it. Uh, so, that being said, would you like to bring us into how First Contact deals with a utopia? Okay. Well, a little bit about the movie. This is about... it. it well, it starts out with the Borg, and the Borg want to stop First Contact. And First Contact is what brings Earth into the Federation. Well, it, it connects Earth to the Vulcans. Right, and... which helps because they Earth has just um, created a, their first warp engine. Yes. And that gets the interest of the Vulcans. So the Vulcans come, come down and we have first contact with alien species, which will eventually, they kind of, the Vulcans kind of nurture um, the Terrans and um, brings them into the Federation, which is uh, there also will be a Starfleet. There's no Starfleet yet. So it's the whole beginning of everything. Yes. But the Borg want to assimilate the Earth and have that not happen. Yes. Uh, eventually, the after this space flight of Zephram Cochran, where he tests his first warp engine, <clears throat> the Vulcans come down make first contact, the humans and the Vulcans eventually team up with the Tellarites and the Andorians and they create the Federation and they become this galactic power and utopia. And the Borg have found that they are a very difficult enemy. Mm -hmm. And so they're going to go back in time, stop it before it happens, as Caroline mm -hmm. said. But we also... I mean, it's something that's very interesting if you think about it, though, is because Earth has just come off of, of the Third World War. Yes. They are not in a utopia by any means no. yet. Uh, in fact, I believe they say that they just lost in the last like decade 600 million people mm -hmm. uh, is the number they give. So a good chunk of humanity just died. Right. And Earth is fragmented and not together at all. Mm -hmm. But what helps bring them together is this first contact. Mm -hmm. And this idea, oh, we're not alone in the universe. Right. But we also see through Picard's story and through Zephram Cochran's story, the idea of confronting the past. And I mentioned it earlier, mm -hmm. but you have to confront the past in order to advance further as a person and as a people. Mm -hmm. And part of confronting the past in this utopia is all of the members of the Enterprise E are hero struck by getting to meet Zephram Cochran, mm -hmm. the guy who invented war the warp engine. Right. And then they meet him and he drinks and curses and is a normal person. Right. He listens to really loud rock and roll yeah. and he's drunk most of the time and yeah. And while that's going on, Picard is dealing with the past trauma of becoming a member of the Borg, forcibly, and how he's never quite worked past that. And you have to confront the past. You have to confront trauma. You have to confront the reality of what people are. By the end of the movie, Zephram Cochran, despite himself, despite not wanting to be this big noble hero, goes ahead with the launch, goes ahead with first contact, and Picard overcomes his own trauma, his mm -hmm. own loss, 
and ends up moving past it. And both of those things tie together into how we get to utopia is we don't run from who we are or what we are or what's happened. We accept it and we try and become better. I think that takes us into insurrection, mm -hmm. which gets us more back into the present of the Federation. Okay. And this is where we actually do find a small village on a planet that seems like a utopia. Yeah. It's uh, even to the point where nobody really dies. Mm -hmm. <laughs> they literally don't, they stop aging. Right. And they... And they... And they live with the world, they don't need to have any kind of technology, they do everything themselves, and they're completely happy. Yes. And so obviously, uh, somebody wants to destroy Of course. <laughs> and essentially industrialize the process that makes them uh, functionally immortal mm -hmm. on a grander scale. Mm -hmm. And we see more coming out of the Dominion War, because at this point I think the Dominion War is about to wrap up. I believe this is concurrent with either season six or seven of Deep Space Nine. And the Dominion War is sort of coming to a head. The Federation has taken huge losses. And the idea that you could take this planet and turn it into a functional fountain of youth for your, your people, that is very appealing mm -hmm. like that but you would have to remove these 600 people mm -hmm. you would have to take them off of their planet mm -hmm. and move them somewhere else and take it away from them and it, it, this isn't part of what we talk about with utopia but this is a part of um, looking at tough social issues yes and that is taking a a whole group of people a whole culture and um, forcibly removing them from um, their village, from where they live, and how that has happened a lot in history. And they even, at one point, Picard uh, even says, how many people is too many people? Right. And the concept of 600 people seeming like an insignificant number compared to the billions in the Federation they are, in the grand scheme of things, an insignificant number, but Picard understands that once you go down that road, mm -hmm. you start justifying all the numbers. Right. And we also get into that, um, and this is a spoiler alert, the Federation has teamed up with a group of people who are supposed to be able to um, extract whatever it is that makes people immortal and it turns out that these people are the same as, genetically as the people who are in the village and it turns out they are the same people but um, they have left utopia because they thought that it would be better to live with technology and they regret it and now they're coming back yes and that's not what the Federation is about, and that's not what the Federation would want, because they've basically gotten into the middle of a blood feud. Yes, and Picard maintains his uh, moral position pretty much the entire movie. Uh, it is the rest of the Federation that has to sort of right itself. Um, 
But moving into the final Next Generation movie, we have Star Trek Nemesis, where a clone of Captain Picard was raised by the Remans, which are the sort of hidden people of the Romulan Star Empire, and he takes over the Romulan Star Empire, and uh, he needs Captain Picard's DNA, essentially. Mm -hmm. And that brings us into a sort of very personal movie uh, where it's really down to just a couple of characters. But how does it deal with the concept of utopia or social issues? Well, it's more about nature nurture because you have two people who are genetically the same person. But you have one person who grows up in uh, the utopia of, of the Federation and of Earth, and you have an, the other person who's exact same person who um, basic and that's Shinzon, and he basically grows up a slave. Yes. Um, the Remans are slaves to the Romulans. They do is it dilithium mining? Yes. And they are also used in the Dominion War um, as soldiers, and so they're treated very poorly. So you have a look at what the, the potential with Picard of this great captain and this great person. And Shinzon could have been that, but because he had so much hardship and in his life, he's turned out to be the bad guy, the evil one in the, in the movie. And it's made clear that he has all the same intellectual capabilities as Picard. He's incredibly smart, mm -hmm. and he's incredibly uh, tactful in how he proceeds with things. Um, but he lacks the sort of hope that Picard has. Right. And the want to do the right thing. At the end of the day, all Shinzon ends up really caring about or needing is to move past Picard and not need his DNA anymore mm -hmm. and become, at one point, he's like Praetor of the Romulan Empire. Right. He takes over the Romulan Empire. Yeah. And so it, it's very interesting to see this concept of their... Uh, there goes Picard except for being raised in the Federation mm -hmm. and he's just as smart just as resourceful but he's evil mm -hmm. and it goes a long way to highlighting how the Federation grows people and enables them to become right. better um, but that brings us to the Kelvin timeline right and a little bit of backstory for the Kelvin timeline okay. is that in Star Trek from 2009, the first of the Kelvin movies, a Romulan miner mm -hmm. right. named Nero goes back in time, destroys the USS Kelvin, which has uh, James Kirk's parents on it. George. George and his mother. Uh, while she's pregnant with him on it, and she gets off just in time as James is being born, but George has to stay behind to pilot the ship. Mm -hmm. And George uh, sacrifices himself so she escapes, and it alters the timeline drastically. Right. You have, and then later on, Vulcan gets destroyed. So one of the 
four key founding members of the Federation, that planet is destroyed. Mm -hmm. So you have this very specific break mm -hmm. in the timeline where James Kirk is, instead of being a driven, uh, uh, focused individual, he becomes much more erratic and rebellious, doesn't really even want to join Starfleet. Whereas in the regular timeline, he's in there immediately and he wants to make his father proud. Mm -hmm. In this one, you don't really have that. He has to sort of get talked into it by Captain Pike. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and that's one of the themes of the um, Kelvin movies is um, Kirk's trying to find his place. Yes. Uh, but how does, and we'll sort of, uh, due to time constraints, we'll sort of tie all the Kelvin movies together. Mm -hmm. um, how do the Kelvin movies deal with Utopia? Okay, and we had talked about this before, um, that because of what happened with Nemo, that he, and the changes that he made, he made, um, he made Starfleet very paranoid. They are now worried that, well, we're supposed to be about peaceful exploration, but then something can happen right out of nowhere, and then you're going to have to defend yourself. Yes. He took out a core Federation world. He took out a Federation cruiser, and he did it easy. Mm -hmm. it, it wasn't even difficult for him. And when the Enterprise warps in in Star Trek 2009 to uh, Vulcan right before he destroys the planet, he's destroyed essentially a fleet of ships. Mm -hmm. So you have this enemy that is nigh impossible to stop, and then you move into Into Darkness, the second movie, mm -hmm. and the Federation is working with Khan from Star Trek II, yeah. uh, is working with Khan, who they found, in order to create a weapon that would protect them. Mm -hmm. Because now they're worried about the Klingons. Yes. And it takes almost the complete destruction of San Francisco and thus Starfleet, because that's where the headquarters are, as well as the deaths of most of the upper tier captains. Yeah, the upper echelon. And the head admiral, uh, Admiral Marcus, and the destruction of a Section 31 base mm -hmm. to really sort of right the ship, so to speak, mm -hmm. and get... Utopia focused back on where it should be going, right. which leads us into beyond mm -hmm. where they become explorers again, right. and they, they're, they're building space stations to house many different groups in the Federation, and you get more to classic Star Trek. Right. So the three Kelvin movies all sort of tie together to make this, this statement about like, oh, you can sort of wound a Utopia and you can make it paranoid, but eventually it'll right itself mm -hmm. and it'll become better again. I think that's that's yeah. roughly accurate. Mm -hmm. uh, what are your thoughts on the Kelvin movies? I, uh, what you said is, is when it comes to talking about utopias and things like that, I mean, there's other plot threads that are going through, but when you're talking about what we're focusing on today, yeah. I agree with what you're saying. 
All righty. Well, thank you for joining Caroline and myself as we discuss the various Star Trek films. Star Trek is a multifaceted series that touches upon many topics. Today in particular, we discuss Star Trek's utopian ideals and what that entails and how it's presented. All of the items discussed today are available through Maricopa County's Library District. Uh, please join Caroline and I next month as we discuss Star Trek and multimedia, where we'll examine Star Trek's in no Star Trek in novels, audio, and comic forms. Uh, for Caroline and myself, thank you once again. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to Shelf Logic. Make sure to hit subscribe and share this podcast with your friends. Follow us on social media where we are at MCLDAZ. 